and welcome to series two of the Research Zone podcast, the podcast where we aim to make sense of youth mental health research. Thank you so much for coming back and choosing to listen to our second series. Each week, we'll talk to a different researcher to learn about their research project, discussing the why, what, where, when and how of their research, and most importantly, how this can benefit us as young people. Before we get into today's episode, just wanted to give a quick shout out to Beat Freaks, who are an amazing Birmingham-based organisation who work to really uplift and empower young people's ambition, creativity and ideas. They foster a growing, vibrant community of young people to help them develop and shape their creative or business ideas and then connect them with people who matter. They've been amazing in supporting this podcast, so a big shout out to you guys. Now, on with today's show. Hi guys, I'm Lizzie and welcome back to the Research Zone podcast. Today I'm joined by the lovely Amy Jess, who's come to talk to us about her research. Amy Jess, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So I usually go by Jess. I just have the annoying thing of having Amy in front because I use my middle name. So I go by A.Jess for all academic purposes. I'm an ESRC funded PhD student and I'm situated between the Institute for Mental Health at the University of Birmingham and then the Self-Harm Research Group at the University of Nottingham. And I'm currently working at King's College London. And my interest is in self-harm with at-risk groups, particularly LGBTQ young people. Amazing. So would you like to give us a quick summary of your PhD research that you're going to be talking to us about? Yeah, so my PhD explores what the underlying processes which lead to self-harm in LGBTQ young people. So when I say self-harm, I'm basically talking about any thoughts or feelings with and without suicidal intention. And I'm looking at the age group of 16 to 25. And then for LGBTQ, basically, it's anyone who isn't cis and slash or heterosexual. So it's like everyone under the umbrella. So I've done this by looking at a load of different things. I start off with a systematic review and meta-analysis, looking at the risk factors for self-harm in this group, and then talking to young people themselves to see what they feel led to their self-harm. And then I take these results and build them into an experience sampling study, which basically tracks how moods, thoughts, experiences change in real time to get an understanding of how these processes could lead to self-harm in daily life. So that's a really brief rundown. Amazing. That sounds so interesting. I can't wait to hear more about it. So why did you choose to research self-harm in at-risk groups? What kind of made you interested in this area? So I've got lived experience of self-harm. So I'm personally really passionate about the area. But also suicide is one of the leading causes of death for young people. And self-harm is the strongest predictor of completed suicide. But then if you look into young people more specifically, LGBTQ people actually have a really, really high prevalence. It's like 30 to 50 percent higher than in cisgender heterosexual young people. So there's so much going on there that is making self-harm so high for LGBTQ young people. And then trying to work this out. It's probably related to some really unique stresses that they have to face, which other people don't have to deal with. But there's a lot of research about self-harm. There's some research about LGBTQ people, 
but there isn't actually that much about self-harm in LGBTQ young people. And considering there's still quite a lot of stigma surrounding self-harm and LGBTQ people in general, it's a really interesting and important area to be looking at, for me anyway. And to say it's still stigmatized, there has been some great movement in accepting mental health more generally and LGBTQ people, but there's still quite a lot of stigma and it's not great everywhere. Definitely. And what do you think, though, some of those stigmas that still exist are? Obviously, we've come a long way and I think a lot more people, myself included, are now more open about their sexuality and about their mental health and things like that. But what stigmas do you think still exist? So one of the really key findings from my PhD has actually been um, bullying, stigma and discrimination. And that particularly comes from peers. So people experiencing things at school. Um, being taunted, having uh, racial, not racial, uh, homophobic slurs, taunted at them, difficulties in changing room, like people thinking that just because they're gay, they'd be looking at someone. And it's not that people aren't like that. And lots of the young people have been like, I'm not a pervert. I'm obviously not going to look at everyone. And like, obviously, I wouldn't be doing that in a changing room anyway. But then it's also from families. So quite a lot of the young people I've spoken to have had unsupportive or unaccepting family members, which have made it quite difficult, particularly for transgender and gender diverse young people. There's a lot of communication around needing to use pronouns and parents or family members not doing that. And when they're repeatedly asked to do it, they don't. And they say some really nasty stuff to the young people. So those are the two main groups that have been identified through my groups about what's been happening. So how did you do the research? Uh, you mentioned things about meta-analysis and systematic reviews. Can you explain for people who maybe aren't familiar with research, like what those things mean and how you went about gathering your data? Sure. So for my PhD, I use an exploratory sequential mixed method design, which basically means that each study that I do is built off the previous one. So I do that so that I can get a load of different viewpoints to why and what is leading to self-harm in LGBTQ young people. So systematic review and meta-analysis is essentially looking at all the research in the area and then bringing it all together and trying to find the associated risk factors for self-harm within the population. And I work out prevalence and odds ratios for that. So basically giving a percentage of how many people that this is likely to affect from previous research and an odds ratio, so saying how much more likely it is to occur for an LGBTQ person than someone who's cisgender and het. Then I followed that up with interviews with LGBTQ young people to hear what they actually had to say, because to me, it's grand to look at the research and say, hey, researchers are saying that this is probably influential and then they test you on it rather than talking to the young person themselves and being like, well, actually, yeah, that thing was happening for me. So it flags in the survey. But this is what I think is actually leading to myself harm. And I think sometimes if you just do quant work, you completely miss that angle. I love qualitative work, if you might be able to hear. And then I did the final study as an experience sampling study, which is kind of new in this area because it hasn't been done with LGBTQ young people who experience self-harm. So my study was to actually see if that worked. 
but basically what it does is repeated testing over the day in really short surveys. So they get a like ping on their phone that says, hey, can you do the survey for us? It takes like two minutes to do. And then you get real-time measurements of how people are feeling at that moment. And you should theoretically be able to track what happens and then when someone self-harms or when there's a peak in their suicidal thoughts. So you get a real-time testing of what's going on. That sounds amazing. And I love how you've kind of taken the like number side, the statistics, and then got people's viewpoints on it. That sounds like it's really kind of comprehensive and getting a full view rather than just relying on numbers and boxes. So you kind of hinted earlier at some things that you found out, but what did you find out from all of your data? (laughs) A really big question. So there's basically three main themes that have come out across my two studies, the systematic review and then the interviews. And then I built these into the third experience sampling study so that we could track whether it's likely that they do influence influence self-harm in real time. So the first and probably the most obvious one is that young people had really high mental health difficulties. So the meta-analysis showed that it was likely to be 2.67 times higher than people who were cisgender heterosexual. And then in the interviews, participants would talk about it in a more contextual way. So I didn't bring mental health difficulties into the interviews. I didn't ask them about their mental health. I just asked about what they thought caused self-harm. And naturally, people would say things like, oh, X and Y were happening, and that made me feel really depressed, and then this happened. So I couldn't cope anymore, and I self-harmed. So it wasn't just that they were depressed and they self-harmed. There was a difference there. As I mentioned before, there was a lot of bullying, stigma, discrimination. So from the meta-analysis, it was 3.74 times more likely for young people who were LGBTQ to self-harm and who had been bullied than counterparts. And then in the interviews, this was really well described and participants talked about their family networks and like people talking to them and saying things like, oh, you're not LGBTQ identity, quotation marks, or telling them like, oh, when are you going to get a boyfriend when they're a lesbian? So there was a lot of that going on. And it was just really obvious across all all the studies I did that this was a really crucial and key part that was leading to self-harm. Like even in the experience sampling study where we didn't have enough power to say, this is definitely linked to this. The people who did self-harm during that time period were also saying like, oh, my sister keeps being discriminatory towards me. I saw someone on the street who was experiencing stigma. So it was really pronounced. And then the final and probably the most complicated one is that it's the young person's internal perceptions about being LGBTQ as well that led to their self-harm. So it was kind of described as a journey of self-acceptance. When they were younger, they didn't have the words to describe how they were feeling, what they thought their sexuality was, what they thought their gender identity was. And then obviously that made people really confused and feel different. 
So there was a lot of self-hatred going on. And for transgender and gender diverse people, there was also the gender dysphoria and difficulties with medical transition, which is madness. The, the stuff they have to go through for medical transition is so difficult and so lengthy. And then that all sort of, it was really leading to self-harm. But then when people felt able to accept themselves, you could see this completely shift, whether they start to reduce in self-harm or if they did still self-harm. It wasn't really to do with their LGBTQ identity. It was more like people are being mean to me because of this, but I'm still proud of it. And it's, it's a difficult journey to see. But at the end, there was like this nice glimmer of hope of, hey, you know, being proud and accepting who you are, it really does help to reduce that self-harm. That is amazing and such interesting findings. And I guess one question that I'm thinking, and I don't know if it kind of came out in your research, but what kind of helped people to accept themselves and their identity? Was there anything that was kind of cited as being helpful on that self-acceptance journey? So to start off with, like one of the really easy implications I think can come from this because of how people talked about it was that people said when they were young, they didn't have the words to describe that they were LGBTQ. And I think that that can really simply translate to having the terminology when you're younger. So having representation at a younger age in childhood. Uh, And that could be through things like books or TV or whatever, so people can see something and even at like eight be like, oh, Max from a cartoon likes boys and girls. I think I'm like that. And then they don't have to have this whole, oh my God, what if I'm different thing? It's just something normalized, which it should be anyway, but you know, we're still having problems with that. But I think that's a really simple way to help self-acceptance. And then obviously the family is crucial because it it was so important. And I'm looking at 16 to 25 year olds. So thinking about people who are even more impressionable when they're growing up because self-esteem and like just being impressionable in general is really important in late childhood, early adolescence. And that can set you up for how you feel about yourself getting into the later teen years I'm looking at. So if we can encourage more LGBTQ acceptance just in society widely, then that's grand. But also if we had some resources that were family friendly that could be passed out from school trips or school runs and GPs, just having them like really available that adults can, I say adults, like I'm not one, so parents can just pick them up at easy locations that they're going to be at and that they know that there's someone there who deals with children quite a lot. I think that would be quite a useful way to encourage parents to ask questions and then have more information and get more informed about being LGBT and what's it like and what's the history there and knowing a bit more about what someone who is LGBTQ might be going through. Definitely. And those are such amazing ideas. And I think I really agree with the one about kind of having those resources and trying to educate families, because I feel like there is a very much a generation gap at the moment where the older generation is still quite taboo and they're still not sure. And I think the way I hear some of like my parents' generation talk about it is almost like 
LGBTQ plus people are like a different species and they're not human. They're like a different breed and we need to try and like fix them or understand them or whatever. And I think it's kind of normalizing it for them because then obviously if they hold those stigmas, they're going to be passing them on to their children. And then it's when you're in the toxic family home kind of environment. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where people are like, oh my God, LGBT people. And it's like, they've been around forever. They've been as long, around as long as humans have been it's not new it should always have been uh, normalized it's just somehow society ended up in this weird spiral of like actually difference no and it, it just doesn't make sense so I think it's just reminding people that you know this is this is anyone this is your neighbor this is your child potentially and this is what they may have to go through but these are the different words that are nice to use or that are useful uh, so like things like pronouns I know loads of people here are a bit older are like well why do we need pronouns it's like but once you tell them that it, it's so easy for me to put she her on the end of a zoom tag why can't you do that it doesn't hurt you to do that and it might actually help someone else to feel as though they can be their true selves there and when you explain it to them lots of times they have nothing to say to it, but there's still that disconnect. So I think it's about educating people again and uh, just keeping going with it, I'm sure. Definitely. There's lots of people who are, who are like, oh, God, teaching them. I shouldn't have to teach them. It's like, yeah, no, but still at that point. Exactly. And I think when you're trying to educate people, you're always going to get resistance, especially from the ones who don't want to know about it. But I think it's trying to encourage the inclusion the acceptance and stuff and I feel like all you can do is try as long as you've kind of tried I feel like that's all you can do and then those prejudices are on them then so we've kind of talked a bit about it but what do you think the real world implications are for this so I think there's the whole sort of education side but then we can bring that into schools by teaching LGBTQ history, teaching terminology, different gender identities, different sexual orientations, all of that. Because there's actually been loads of research that shows once you do this in schools, uh, children become more accepting. And then people who are LGBTQ feel better able to explore their identity. So being able to comfortably explore your identity is quite closely associated with self-harm because it's understanding yourself and not being able to understand yourself is really difficult so self-harm happens this sort of education has also been shown to reduce bullying so that's the sort of school-based one and then I think there's also a couple clinical implications so if we know what specific stresses are we can inform GPs like hey for young people who are LGBTQ this is likely to occur and this often leads to self-harm. If we get some specialised tailored training for GPs so that they can identify how they should approach and talk about these issues with young people, then hopefully that would encourage more help seeking. So then that would also help to reduce self-harm. So it's kind of cyclical. The really cool thing about experience sampling as well which my participants just naturally did, is 
because you're tracking in real time, they started sort of assessing and managing their own mood and self-harm. So I had a couple of participants who actively didn't self-harm because they were using the ESM. But then a couple of people were saying things like, okay, so I noticed my mood went down and I wanted to self-harm. So I sat back and thought, well, what was actually making me feel that way? And they like reviewed their last couple of hours to work out why they were self-harming. So there could be this really interesting niche where ESM, so that's experience sampling methods, sorry, could be used to like assess and manage self-harm in people who are just in the general public who are LGBTQ. And that could potentially go to people who weren't LGBTQ as well. But it was really interesting that all of my participants monitored their own self-harm and mood but then some of them actively used it to stop. Definitely. And that's so amazing because that could be a very accessible tool that people like the majority of the general public could use in order to kind of help themselves rather than relying on someone or something else. It's a very like self-sufficient kind of tool. Mm -hmm. So apart from that, what do you think is next in this area of research in terms of LGBTQ plus and self-harming? So that's a really exciting area for me because it's what I'm going to get to do in my postdoc, which is at oh. King's College, London. Woo. So I've done the first experience sampling study, which shows that you can do it successfully in LGBTQ people who self-harm and safely. That's another really important part. It's, it was safe to do this. I've identified what is likely to lead to self-harm and I've shown that it's likely that these fluctuations over time link, cat could possibly link to self-harm. So in the next six months at King's, I'm going to be running this as a full study, which is just going to show us those patterns. And then after that, I'm going to be running the study to see if people do use it to stop their self-harm or manage their self-harm and manage their mental health. So kind of exactly what we were talking about just then. And then the wider bit of my postdoc is that I'm going to be looking at digital interventions, which could be used with LGBTQ young people who are at risk or who do self-harm. And through this, we want to design a bespoke intervention, which is specifically for LGBTQ young people to help with their mental health and their self-harm. So that's what I'm doing (laughs) next. There's so much that could still be done in this area. And I get excited anyone wants to talk about it just because I'm like, oh, look what we could do. Look how we could like help people through like Dungeons and Dragons work out like identity because you can be whoever you want in that. Like there's so much that you can do. I think it's still a really interesting, exciting area for people to be getting into because there's not much there still. (laughs) Definitely. I think there's such a long way to go, but it's really exciting that people like you and others are kind of really working, kind of discovering these new methods, new links, new causes and stuff like that. I think it shows real promise for the future. I hope that we are doing something worthwhile, right? So like to me, any sort of particularly self-harm research, you have to see the outcome of it because it is such a dangerous thing for someone to be engaging with 
So if you can translate what you do in an office or whatever you do it into the real world, that's the most important thing, I think. Definitely. So my final question is, where can people get involved in this kind of research or just generally find out more about it? So to find out more about my stuff, people can find me on Twitter at a Jess Williams and through my King's College London email address, which is amy underscore jess dot Williams at kcl dot uk. And to find out more generally about LGBTQ research in young people, this isn't specific so much to self-harm, but there's a really cool group that I'm part of that's called Enquire. And this looks at LGBTQ resilience in young people. And it's an international group. So Canada, America, Mexico, the UK, and we recently got Australia involved. So this is specifically focused. And it's really cool. And there's lots of different research going on. And it's a really nice, easy website that people can visit and see lots of different things going on. And then obviously... There's the self-harm research group, which I have to give a shout out to because we do lots of stuff with young people who self-harm and there's some really cool stuff going on there and they're associated with this digital intervention work as well. Amazing. And I'll make sure I put all the links in the show notes so you can just click on them and don't have to remember fancy email addresses because I always forget them. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jess. It's been so interesting to hear about your research. It's been great talking about it. I feel like I rambled a bit, but uh, (laughs) fingers crossed the message got across. It did. You did great. Don't worry. It's really clear, really enjoyable. So thank you. Thanks for having me on and interviewing so well. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you got something from today's conversation and some nuggets of wisdom you can utilise to manage your own mental health. This is a podcast made by young people for young people. So if you liked it, then please do follow us on socials and let us know about any future topics you would like to see. We hope you have a wonderful week and most importantly, take care of yourself.